Bob Dole came along at a time, and I'm, I'm speaking less of the Senate, although I think it became a factor in the Senate, but more kind of as a national political figure, where you can almost look at much of his career as chasing after this, this receding caboose mm -hmm. of, quote, conservatism, mm -hmm. which is being redefined uh, almost day by day. I, I mean, clearly, uh, Reagan redefined it in terms of economics. Mm -hmm. And Reaganism at least opened the door mm -hmm. to the social conservatives, social conservatives. the religious right. Right. And here you have Dole, who, like Ford, is a member of a generation that defined conservatism as, in some ways, self-restraint. Mm -hmm. um, government, what government didn't do, right. shouldn't do, arguably couldn't do. Mm -hmm. But um, an acknowledgement of what government could and should. Yeah, but I mean, but but almost attached almost a moral significance mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. living within your means. Yes, yes. And yes. at the same time, that healthy skepticism about government mm -hmm. extended to what now are social issues, but were yes. then personal issues mm -hmm. that you didn't really talk about. Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. you know, right. impolite. Right. I mean. <laughs> We don't right. talk about abortion. We right. don't talk about right. people's sex lives. It's, exactly. It's, there's a kind of uh, discretion, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. which is based on self-respect mm -hmm. and respect toward others. I mean, mm -hmm. real restraint. Right. Um, and all of that kind of blew up. Yes. In beginning in the seventies. Yes. And the paradox is: here's a guy who, in seventy-six, is put on the ticket in no small measure because he's deemed acceptable to the Reagan wing of the party mm -hmm. and who is in many quarters criticized for being too harshly conservative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 20 years later, he's having to put down with very mixed success yes. ideological and cultural rebellions mm -hmm. within this unwieldy coalition that he's mm -hmm. in. Inherited. Mm -hmm. If that is a a backdrop, at mm -hmm. least, how did that manifest itself in the Senate? I mean, how how did you see that? And was he was he aware of that as it was happening? Was he? Um, well, it's an interesting question. I think uh, probably only he can really answer that question. Um, I think we saw it most dramatically, at least I saw it most dramatically, um, with the rise of the House conservatives and Gingrich. But, I mean, you certainly saw suspicions around Dole and the tax bills. I mean, you know, there, you know, this sort of lingering sense that, you know, he was always prepared to uh, raise taxes, always prepared to cut a deal. Yeah. Um, uh, with our friends. Deal-making itself was suspect. Deal-making itself was suspect. Um, he was always viewed as being soft as a result of that, that he was always ready to uh, to make the deal. Now, I think the other side of that would be that many would consider him a legislator as a result, someone who was prepared to work to a conclusion, one who was prepared to seek 
um, uh, alternatives that in fact gave people something with which to deal, that he had underlying principles but he didn't, but losing, and I, he would often say this, you know, that that losing isn't, you know, isn't in and of itself a gain in most cases. It can be. I mean, there is a point occasionally to losing, but uh, as a general matter, you know, having gained something, in fact, moves you ahead. But I think I saw it most dramatically during uh, the Gingrich era, um, where he really was, particularly since he was approaching the anticipation of another run, um, very conserved about being flanked on the right. Um, and you heard it in the Senate from Phil Graham and others. Um, you know, he was at that point viewed as more in the um, sort of diminishy, you know, sort of chafey, not as liberal as chafey, but certainly in that group of people who were pragmatists, pragmatists who were legislators, who, who, who could reach across the aisle, um, for whom burning bridges and scorched earth was not a strategy. Um, and, you know, you saw it in terms of how we would uh, position amendments, how we would allow people to, you know, to put forward those points of view, made sure that everyone was heard in the caucus, um, and, you know, was, I think, at times reluctant to put forward an alternative were it to have been viewed as having given too much. So th that's where I particularly saw it occur. You know, it's odd. I, the older I get, the more, I, I hate to be reductionist, but I mean, the more and more it seems like generational factors are the most defining. And right. it's, it's bizarre how history does repeat itself. I mean, if you, if you go back a generation, here you had Bob Dole and Jerry Ford as young Turks Tossing Charlie Halleck yes. out the window. Yes. Okay. Yes. Then, of course, along about whatever, you've got, say, Trent Watt yes. and his generation yes. coming over yes. from the House. Yes. And ultimately, Trent Watt would be criticized yes. for being too much of a deal maker. Yes. It's yes. extraordinary. This well, it is extraordinary. And, and I think there is a certain amount of it that is generational. There's a certain amount of it as well. Um, and this is more instant on my part than anything, but the movement from the house of these younger generation, there were a group of people who were, um, had been in the minority in the house for a very long period of time, who um, were used to being uh, combative, uh, the lots and others who came over from the house during that period of time, um, as compared to the others, like Dole, who'd come over at an earlier point in time, where it wasn't the kind of sense of anger and frustration that you saw. Um, and there was no patience. I mean, whereas I think Dole's generation came over with the expectation of some patience. Um, and that just wasn't the case with this well, newer group. Now, th now the, the later generation, I suspect, would say that's because they were so accustomed to being in the minority Mm -hmm. That they had a mindset that, okay, we're going to work within this framework of uh, this expectation right. that we're in a minority. Right. Uh, whereas they were coming along just as the conservative movement and sort of Reagan were, were really coming onto the scene and, and transforming expectations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. at least the possibility of being in the majority. Well, um, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, I... <clears throat> 
I think I've mentioned before, remembering vividly uh, during the period of time when the government shut down and um, uh, you know, the, the House Republicans were clear that they weren't going to budge. They weren't going to give Clinton an inch and um, refused to do the continuing resolutions, refused to sort of move things ahead. And at one point, um, Dole had me, because it, we'd gone through it at this point, it had been some period of time, people had been out of work. And the um, Dole had me call over to the House side because he had rejected it one more time, the House had, um, and basically say to the House folks, this had been going on now for some period of time, and um, the House was clearly holding tight. Dole, of course, uh, was concerned about appearing, you know, one more time to be the guy who was always prepared to cut a deal. But he, you know, he said to me, he said, call them. And it was Dick Army and sort of all, all of those folks. He said, call them and tell them, I'm not holding this one more time. You know, there are people depending on these paychecks who live from paycheck to paycheck. And some of these guys have never in their lives wanted for everything or anything. Uh, and he said, I'm not going to do it to people one more time. But it was that tension between, you know, wanting to do the right thing, the tension um, of, you know, being a responsible legislator and wanting to work through things and being boxed into appearing to be, um, you know, too willing to, you know, to give something up. Um, so I think it did cause real issues for him. How was, if, if, it, if there was a process, how was strategy during that period coordinated between the two houses? Well, uh, you know, to the extent there was a strategy, and there there was at times, it was literally Dole walking, you know, across the Capitol or Newt coming across to our side. Um, there was a fair amount of that where the two of them would go back and forth to one another's offices um, and have a conversation but, you know, Dole uh, had his own constituency in the Senate that was, you know, also not particularly enamored of the House Republicans. And so he was, you know, always fighting that battle. That is, you know, don't let these, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, 100 days of, uh, of legislation, um, don't let them drive us to a position that none of us are comfortable uh, but literally, you know, it was the back and forth across the Capitol. And how much is that dynamic sort of a permanent part of the Hill? I mean, the latent and sometimes mm -hmm. overt suspicions between the two houses. Oh, I think it's it's it, it, absolutely a part of um, uh, the relationship between the two bodies. And I think you know, it remains as challenging irrespective of who were in the relative positions, whether it was Tip O'Neill or Jim Wright or Bob Dole or, you know, uh, Bob Michael or George Mitchell, whomever it is, there is always that tension between the and two bodies. Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I'm sure people much smarter than I um, have thought about that. Um, 
but I think it is um, a sense of entitlement in part on the part of the senators. I mean, there are fewer of them. They are there for a longer period of time. They have more time to essentially be reflective, to take risks. Um, you know, they are given the sense of being more elite in some sense. Uh, the House, um, again, there are far more of them. Um, much shorter periods of time, much less time to essentially, you know, position themselves. Um, the Senate tends to be more deliberative. The Senate is also historically, I think, uh, thank heavens, sort of the last bastion of the minority in terms of the ability to stand up and speak uh, when you chose to on any topic. Um, and the House is so constrained and so restricted um, and the Senate just has a freer sense of it. You know, and the other thing I think that's unique about the Senate is because there is no rules committee, you are forced to essentially find a way to get your business done. The bulk of the work in the Senate is done by consent. It is done because the two leaders sit down and figure out what it is they're going to get done. And, uh, you know, they don't have either the, you know, the sort of, burden nor the blessing of a rules committee that so tightly constrains and allows the majority to essentially ride over the minority. So in the Senate, there is a a greater sense of tolerance. There is a greater sense of having to negotiate to get things done. Um, And I think there is none of that in the House. And, you know, so I think they are just inherently different bodies. Is it also possible, too, that traditionally, uh, presumably, uh, congressmen resented the fact that senators had a much higher profile, much more oh, access absolutely. to TV, absolutely. and then along came absolutely. C-SPAN, right. and all of a sudden, There's to a little some more degree, equity. you could level the playing field, but in doing so, uh, it, it didn't necessarily encourage the kind of reflective no. qualities no. on the House I mean, side. Even, even with C-SPAN, you have the two-minute, you know, sort of... Uh, vignette in the House, whereas in the Senate you still have. I mean, the difference is between, you know, a tax bill in the Senate that could take four weeks and in the House could take two hours. Um, You know, C-SPAN brought some exposure, but still in a very constrained environment. Um, And in the Senate, you still have that freedom and that flexibility that exists. Um, And you find that... um, the the Senate still have, they have bigger budgets, they have bigger staffs. Um, I mean, they just have, you know, a greater sense of freedom, I think, in some respects than the House. I'm wondering if, if for example, uh, the Gingrich generation, mm-hmm. looking at Newt and mm-hmm. how he exploited right. the media no question. to, in many ways, transform not only his standing, but, but the public the party. view of the party, sure. Um, sure. not surprisingly, would seek to emulate. Yes. That. Yes. Yes. And um, but he also what? got rid of all the bulls. I mean, all the cardinals. I mean, he the seniority went out the window. Um, I mean, there were a number of things that he did, not only sort of press related, but also just in his method of dealing with his colleagues and his leadership style was a much more uh, aggressive, much more in your face, much less tolerance for the way things used to be. Um, just a very different approach. Let me ask you, back up, because something I asked Mondale occurred to me when he was talking about, he went into the, which almost everyone does, the kind of nostalgia trip about how, you know, in the good old days, the Senate was a much more civilized place. Also. Right. 
And so even if you go back to the 70s, um, I wonder if one reason wasn't because in those days you had parties that had wings. And by that I mean a Minnesota Democrat right. had to get along with a John Stennis. Right, to get things Or done. Dick Russell. Sure, sure. And so you, sure. first sure. of all, internally sure. had to find ways to to form coalitions and bridge differences and, right. and all of that. And and, th- and that almost set you up for that across the aisle. Or at right. least, and, and likewise, the Republican Party was much more diverse. Right. had Northeastern liberals and Midwestern moderates. Well, I mean, you still had some of that during that period of time. I mean, you still had the Chafees and the Hatfields um, along with the Phil Grahams. I mean, I mean, you did still have these um, sort of variances across the party. But again, isn't, this, isn't it part of this sort of evolutionary process where those who wanted purer, Parties, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, right? Certainly, during the time of Dole's national political mm-hmm. career, mm-hmm. that was the direction in which the parties no were question. moving. No question, no question. And presumably, that was reflected in the Senate. Yes, although I think not as starkly as it was in the House. Okay. I mean, because you still had in the Senate. Um, admittedly, it was moving in that direction. Certainly, Reagan brought a number of people in with him. But um, you still had a fair number of folks in the Senate who were centrist. Um, and um, and there were real tensions, no question, within within the party in the Senate. So I think it was moving less quickly than the House. You had a re- less radical turnover. Do you think... Stupid question, because I'm sure he would never use the word anyway. But do you think it was less fun for him toward the end because of those factors? Or uh, I think it was perhaps less productive, maybe, or less. Um, I think it was perhaps less enjoyable in many respects. I think the tension of running for the presidency. I think the the divisions within the party. Um, I think in some cases having to do things that perhaps under different circumstances he would not have done simply because of watching his flanks, you know, whether it was Graham or Gingrich or whomever it had to be. Um, You know, I think he is somebody who fundamentally loved to legislate. I think he loved getting into those back rooms. He was never happier than when there were five things going on. You know, there was something in his office, something in the front office, something in the conference room, something in my office. He was never happier than moving within those arenas um, and walking across, you know, the hall to Mitchell's office or uh, whatever it happens to be. And I think as that became less available to him because of the uh, sort of growing sensitivity uh, within the party and as he positioned himself. I think, you know, and, and his old friends, whether it was Domenici or, you know, whomever had happened to be Chafee and others, um, it was harder for him. And I think that has to have been less enjoyable. Is he the original multitasker? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. Um and, you know, it, it, he's not, but, I mean, he's sort of a classic kind of ADD kind of kid. I mean, so it's just, 
you know, he's happiest when there's just lots of stuff and moving from one thing to another rather than the sort of long contemplative, although we also had the patience of Job. I mean, at times he could outweigh anyone um, when it was in his interest to do so. I mean, his relationship with Bob Bird, um, you know, where Bird would, you know, take a position and disappear and, um, you know, lesser men might have, you know, stomped and pounded and, you know, Dole would just go back to his office and wait. So, I mean, he could do both, which is what was so remarkable. Um, but there's no question he was happiest when there were lots of things going on. You know, go back, you, you talk about the, the, the challenge of, uh, of doing all this um, at the same time running or prospectively running for president. Um, and yet one sensed that it was not easy, but easier in 88. Or, 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 is, that, or is that inaccurate? Um, he just seemed, in 88, he, you know, he just seemed like a more odd choice of words, relaxed candidate or... or uh, well, but, but don't you think part of that was also um, the, the sort of finality of 96? That, I mean, this really was it. I mean, 88, there was still a horizon, you know, that there was still, there wasn't this sort of sense of um, last chance, um, you know, where he was coming back to the Senate and was doing well and was in the leadership and, you know, had years to go. 96, you knew, I mean, where he had made it a decision in his own mind um, that this was it. I mean, I'm either going to do this or I'm going to move to a different stage in my life. And I think, you know, that was probably the right decision for him. But I think that has to have been an enormously difficult. Do you think he made that decision going into the 96 race? Or no. is that something no. sort of tactically forced upon him? I think he came to it. I think he came to it. I don't think he went into it. At least I, I have no reason to think he went into it with that expectation. That was certainly not my impression. But he certainly came to it. And that had to have been difficult. Another di- different dynamic, though. I mean, in 88, he was, he was not the anointed candidate. He Correct. He was taking on the anointed candidate. Correct. And in Correct. 96, he had all of the, right. the baggage of being right. the front runner. The front runner. Right. Although it was not a, a walk in the park. I mean, it was a struggle. But still. Yeah. I mean, but my point being... It, in 88, it was not an insurgency, but it was right. almost an insurgency. Right, right, right. And it in was. 96, it was kind of a, it almost felt very defensive. Yes, that, yeah. You know, I'm the front runner, I'm, this, right. I'm this alleged juggernaut, Right. so therefore I have to be careful not to do anything to... Right, right. And I just, I just think it was a, for any number of reasons, um, a more difficult thing. You know, I don't know whether it's just a tossed-off line or whether he really believes it, but he said more than once, at least in my presence, that in retrospect, 88 was his year, and even in 96, he probably I, shouldn't even run. I, I, I've heard him say the same thing. Okay. I've heard him say the same thing. And so there is sort of a finality about it, sort of 96. I mean, it was sort of an inevitability, but not one necessarily that he was He, he, he did He very rarely seemed the happy warrior. I think that's right. I think that's right. 
I think that's right. And, and what contributed to that? Was it just because Clinton was unbeatable as things evolved, well, developed by then? Um, or what uh, did he have to go through to get the nomination? Or uh, Well, I think it was um, age? taking, I mean, could well have been age. Um, there, you know, in taking on any incumbent with the kind of, uh, you know, popularity that Clinton and the sort of facile nature of sort of Clinton's personality adjusting to everything. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't think Dole really fully understood why Clinton wasn't held more accountable. I mean, I think there was just a tremendous frustration in that respect. And so I think he realized that it was an enormously uphill challenge, far more than it would have been um, in the earlier race. Um, and it is sort of like, you know, this is something I need to do, but not with a lot of I'm really into it kind of thing. And in some odd way, he had almost unwittingly helped to dig his own grave through things like the government shutdown. Yes. Which yes. he had to have yes. been... Very yes. ambivalent about he it. He was absolutely ambivalent about um, it. But ambivalent for a lot of the right reasons. I mean, he was ambivalent about whether it was, in fact, the right thing to do and whether it would achieve the end that they had hoped it would achieve. But it was an inevitable that he, he couldn't break, you know, from the House at that point and from the conservative wing at that point. And, you know, he wasn't somebody who necessarily always went along because it was the thing to do. I mean, he was independent when he needed to be, and I think he felt constrained. Moving back, continuing actually with this theory, uh, if you go way back to Tefra. Yes. And, and, and of course, the, the in some ways, Ersatz triumph of 81. Yes. Uh, a bill that one can question how much he and really believed in yes. the basic principles yes. to begin with, yes. let alone... A process that clearly got out of hand, right? In terms of the Christmas tree and right, and cetera, everything, right? Um, I mean, how how did he deal with that whole sort of dichotomy between, if you will, traditional what conservatism traditionally had been, right, and this kind of new school of um, you can get something for nothing, right? <laughs> Economics, right? <laughs> I mean, well. Um, you know, he was uh, a warrior at that point with an assigned charge. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think your point that it may not have been the thing that necessarily was consistent with his views, um, but he was given an assignment and it was sort of one of these, I'm going to get this done and I'm going to do the best possible goddamn job of getting it done. And brought to the, you know, it brought to the game every possible skill set uh, that needed to be had to get it done. Like? Well, I mean, negotiations, the consensus building, the, uh, um, you know, cutting deals. I mean, those were all things that were, you know, classic dole. Uh, you know, the, the ability to deal with extraordinarily complex matters, the ability to deal with extraordinarily complex relationships in terms of among his own colleagues in the Senate as well as with the House. Um, Were there, was there a significant body 
of Republican senators who uh, perhaps shared some of his unspoken oh sure suspicions doubts about the about where this was leading us yeah. just in terms of the numbers. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's certainly the case. I mean, I think Bob and Rod will uh, certainly Rod will have a uh, a story to tell. Uh, in that regard, but no, there's no question that there were suspicions about it. And of course, the other thing is, in addition to loyalty to his Republican yes. president, yes, you know, this was as we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. This was his chance yes. to demonstrate, yes, responsibility, yes. leadership, yes, and to put behind him whatever in the past exactly had exactly dogged him. And there's no question that. He rose to that challenge and met it. Um, And I think his time at the Finance Committee and then his time in the leadership, um, you know, I think there was a very different dole that became ranking and then the chairman of the Finance Committee and a very different dole that went from the Finance Committee chair to the the leadership. Um, And in each of those cases, I think he was dealing with old ghosts of you know, not able to build consensus, not able to reach across the aisle, sort of bitter, um, uh, partisan. partisan. Um, And in each case, he proved that, in fact, he was capable of not only reaching across his party and building consensus and dealing with the likes of an Al D'Amato and, you know, a Pete Wilson or a, a... you know, a John Chafee or a Jack Hines or Jack Danforth uh, or Phil Graham that he or Warren Rudman, he could reach across that breadth of, of populations as well as across the aisle to a Mitchell um, and to, you know, others who were, you know, willing to work with him, you know, Pat Moynihan. Um, you know, he was clearly able to do that. And I think... Anyone in 76, where you would have asked, would have said, you know, this guy's gone. I mean, he he came out of nowhere. He's going back to nowhere. And this is a guy who, you know, rose to the challenge and exceeded everybody's expectations. And I think people now, today, if they were to look back and look at leadership, would say that he has to have been one of the most skilled leaders, without a question. And where was the White House in all of this? I mean, I assume they were obviously looking over his shoulder, but oh, sure. um, who was, was Jim Baker his contact there? Or No, there... I mean, it really kind of depended on the issue. It was Don Regan. Um, uh, and how was Regan to work with? Um, interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, it, he was a guy from uh, the street, I mean, from Wall Street. I mean, street smart but not terribly skilled politically, um, kind of a tin ear. That's often the case, isn't it? Between, it is. What, what, it why is. do you think that is? Between I think there are different skill set. People who are very successful set, business executives. Different skill set. Uh, you know, they're used to being in charge. They're used to just, you know, ordering and getting it done. Um, they're not necessarily used to the, the patients required to sit down and deal with you know, somebody who comes in and I don't want to vote at 2 o'clock on Tuesday, I can't vote till 3 o'clock on Friday. Um, you know, that kind of minutia, you know, uh, the sort of local politics that translates itself into 
how you cut a deal, um, you know, is just beyond some of these guys. Um, you know, the sort of sweet talking that has to take place of people who were, you know, Regan was very bright um, and I think um, used to being in charge and I don't think terribly tolerant of people who perhaps weren't as gifted. And, uh, you know, Dole could deal with people who really were complaining about voting on Tuesday and uh, and people that had much bigger issues. So, but, but you know, it was a whole cast of characters, you know, Darm and, you know, the whole crowd. What was his relationship with David Stockman? Oh, um, you know, Stockman was um, extraordinarily bright, extraordinarily fast, extraordinarily detailed-oriented. Um, you know, I think he viewed him as a peer, I mean, in a sense of, um, you know, a cabinet officer. But I don't. it wasn't particularly warm or engaging. I mean... You know, the guy was a staff guy at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. Um, how bad was Tuffer? I mean, how difficult was was uh, was it? Oh, it was no question it was difficult. I mean, there were so many moving parts. Um, and basically, I, it was justified as, as the inevitable follow-up to a process that had gotten out of control. In terms yes. of giving away yes. goodies, yes, the year before, um, yes, um, but it, 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 I mean, the complexity because it was not only on the tax side, but also on the spending side, and sort of all of the sort of Medicare issues and all the other things we were dealing with. I mean, it was an enormously complex package. So, I mean, it was probably one of the most remarkable, sort of. Um, you know, you don't really want to watch sausage being made. This was one that you really didn't want to watch being made. And there were clearly there were a lot of components in the Republican coalition oh, yeah. who were very unhappy. Very. And presumably unhappy very. with him. Yes, no question. No question. The bankers. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, the stories that he would tell about the, you know, asking for the toaster back. Um, it, you know, this was um, this was a classic you know, lines out the door, mark up sort of every possible constituency. Um, Is that and, where the Gucci goat twine was going? Yes, yes. I mean, it was just that. It was the classic K Street. Then they were all on K Street. Um, uh, and it was at the height of, um, you know, the role of advocates, the role of lobbyists, and, uh, you know, wandering the halls and every possible constituency. Um, and again, I think in part it's an extraordinary credit to Dole and his colleagues, but also to the staff, particularly on the tax side, um, of keeping track of all these people and keeping track of sort of all those deals that were getting cut and the sort of nuances. I mean, it's, you know, it's the potential for disaster in terms of the details when you're drafting like that, that, you know, things get screwed up, you know, somebody's phone number becomes the, you know, some tax law. Um, so it was an enormously complicated process. How did, how did he general? How did he deal with lobbyists? Kind of dependent. Uh, depended on the day. Uh, depended on his mood. 
uh, depended on whether it was somebody that he'd known um, or knew him and was prepared to take, you know, whatever grief he was prepared to hand out. Um, you know, if it was somebody he was comfortable with, I mean, you know, they were, you know, pleasant conversations. But he didn't have a lot of patience for sitting and, you know, droning on about minutiae. I mean, that was really something he wanted the staff to deal with. Um, you know, he certainly understood the concepts. But he was always unfailingly good. Um, folks that came from Kansas, um, you know, folks that he had known. Um, but again, it would depend on whether in part he had a sense of whether the the argument was a credible one. Um, you know, you would hear him talk about some of the veterans groups um, and whether he viewed them as really being for veterans or really being more about the advocacy and sort of promoting themselves. And so he had a pretty keen eye for um, who was sincere and who wasn't. Um, and, you know, in some of them, he had great relationship. Tom Corlogus is a, a wonderful example of somebody with whom he had a wonderful personal relationship. And, you know, it would be kind of a joke. I mean, you know, whoever Tom was kind of coming by to, uh, to, to sort of lobby for. But, um, you know, some of them he had good relationship with. Others, you know, he was, you know, if he felt that they weren't being honest or direct, he didn't. He would be honest him. and direct? Yeah. Sometimes, uh, you know, we were sort of the middle, you know, I'm not seeing them. You know, somebody would have set up something and set up an appointment and, uh, you know, it was a big deal and, you know. Were they, without naming names, were there occasions when people went out of his office visibly angry? Yes, no question. Uh, I mean, he didn't, uh, he wasn't subtle um, at times and there were people that, you know, felt that he treated them badly. Um, you know, they had a different expectation. Um, and he could be abrupt. He could be very abrupt. And, um, you know, sometimes that was difficult. I mean, you know, people who had, you know, legitimate, credible issues. And um, it just, you know, it was not a good day. In one sense that he uh, developed kind of a head of steam about the bankers and um, some of the restaurant yes. industry. Yes, yes. Who yes. either double-crossed him? Yes, yes. What was the background of that? Well, you know, again, I think probably Bob and Rod, because it was on the tax side, I'll have a better sense of it. But, you know, he kept a pretty straight list in his own mind in terms of people that with whom he had negotiated or we'd negotiated uh, an end result. And if they then turned and lobbied against it, uh, wanted more, uh, went to somebody else, um yeah, he knew. He knew. He kept what, track. What could he do about that? Well, you know, when you're chairman of the finance committee or you're the majority leader, um, you know, at the finance committee, you know, maybe you don't take that amendment. You know, maybe you push back on trying to, or you make it difficult, um, uh, or you alter, you know, uh, what it is that uh, was intended. You know, you change the degree of, you know, uh, the change that they're seeking. And at the same time, you've got the White House. Of course you who's do. Who's clearly very, I assume, uncomfortable with... Those deals. With all of this. Sure. I mean, um, but at the end of the day, I mean, Dole's view was, I'm the one that has to get it off the floor. I'm the one that has to get it out of committee. 
and um, but you at least need to know that the White yeah, House is, absolutely is supporting have to you. Know. And and the White House congressional folks were up all the time, um, and there was a very direct relationship with them. I mean, one of the things to was Dole's that Bill credit. Uh, no, there was a host of them um, uh, at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember. I mean, Will Ball was there at one point. Um, Pam Turner, uh, you know, was there during the Reagan days. Were they good? Um, they were good. They were good. Um, and to his credit, um, one of the things that Dole recognized and was sensitive to was staff and he treated people well and so when you know whether the White House liaisons were up or whomever it happened to be um, I mean Larry Harlow was on was in the White House congressional affairs I mean there are a host of them between Reagan and Bush and, and the others um, Dole would hear them out um, Dennis Thomas, I mean, you know, a host of those kinds of folks, Nick Calio, um, and um, Dole would hear them out. Kenny Duberstein, you know, was down there at uh, at one point in time, and um, he's gotten more mileage out of being chief of staff for yes, a for few a, months. For a few months, <laughs> true. Um, but Dole was always very decent to them. Yeah, yeah he was. How did the Martin Luther King birthday uh, bill come about? Jeez, I don't remember. Yeah. Because he, he took the lead. He was floor he manager. Did. He did. He did. He did, and I don't remember. Yeah. And I I'm think it was Sheila he... Bear. Did Sheila manage that? I don't know. Well, we'll ask her. We'll ask, ask her. We're going to see ask her, ask her. her on yeah. 17th. I don't remember. Yeah. Don't remember. I don't remember. I mean, does civil rights really matter to him? Yes. Um, in the broadest definition, civil rights certainly for any disadvantaged group, um, whether it was people of color, whether it was the disabled, physically disabled. Um, you know, I think because he had in his own life challenges, I think um, he is uniquely sensitive to people being treated unfairly. Um, now, in the same vein, he also um, is uniquely sensitive to people being overcompensation. I mean that, you know, people taking advantage of um, those circumstances. But at the end of the day, he is somebody who believes everybody ought to be given a fair chance. Uh, and they ought to be given position to take advantage of those things. Uh, and so in that vein, I think civil rights is, you know, I think it really does... Um, mean a great deal to him for, you know, all the right reasons. The Supreme Court process. Yes. I mean, again, during his time. Yes. Clearly degenerated. Yes. And I suppose I know lots of people dated to the Bork yes. hearings. Um, although, actually, you go back to Hainsworth and Kurzweil. Yeah. I mean, yeah. clearly yeah. the court was being politicized. Yes. Yes. As soon as there was a conservative yes. president. But I mean, I mean, it was from you Bork to Clarence Thomas. Uh, Clarence Thomas. I mean, there were a whole series of them that were um, uniquely difficult. How did he approach all of that? And 
You know, in a fairly straightforward fashion. Um, uh, you know, at that point um, in the leadership, it you know his view was, and I think he t- held this view with the Clinton administration, is that it is in the right of every president to have their nominees put forward. And whether you agree or disagree with them, they deserve to be considered and be, deserve to be heard. Um, I mean, I think he found Bork odd. Um, uh, but, um, I mean, his view was, you know, this was a choice and the choice ought to be heard. Uh, and I'm going to do everything I can to position the White House to, to get a fair hearing. But I think he found him odd. He, he's that candidate, that rarity. He probably would have been better served if he'd never testified. Exactly. Exactly. But you wonder, who didn't someone sit down and say, Judge Bork, maybe you want to, you know, take this into consideration? Or... Yeah, but that wouldn't have been his um, role. Yeah. Uh, that would have been either the White House role or the handler's um, whether it was, I don't know if it was Tom did that one or not. Um, Tom certainly helped with, with Thomas and some others, but, um, that really wasn't Dole's role. That, that was really someone else's. I mean, in part, it could have been the Judiciary Committee Republicans in some respects. Um, but more than anything else, it's, that's the White House responsibility. Did, uh, Jack Danforth save Clarence Thomas? He certainly made a difference. No question. I mean, people held Jack and Gate in great uh, regard, and um, Jack's views and Jack's standing, I think, clearly had an enormous impact. So there are still senators, or I should say, I mean, the Senate is still an institution where. No, no, that's okay. That's uh, I don't need to get it. Anyway, I mean, so there are still members of the Senate who have an outsized influence based on the perceptions of their, what, character, their credibility? Their character, their credibility, their relationship with their colleagues, um, whether they're viewed as having been fair and balanced and honest in their dealings. Um, you know, uh, I think individual members can make an enormous difference in cases like that, where, where um, essentially people view their having said "I" uh, or "I support that person or that or that proposal" as an imprimatur that is, you know, quite valuable. So there, there's no question that members can play a big role in that respect. And, and Social Security, saving yes. Social yes. Security. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we're going to see Alan Greenspan oh, good. on Friday. Good, what, good. What should I ask Alan Greenspan or what? Oh, boy. Um, is, it, is it fair to say that the Greenspan Commission mm-hmm. was one thing, mm-hmm. but that the actual end game was something else? Was something else. Um, you know, you can get all of the content in the world uh, and all of the proposals, but at the end of the day, that's, that deal, those relationships are what happens in the Senate and on the floor. 
And, you know, we've all seen commissions come and go, but it does, if it doesn't have the right standing or the right constituency, um, and there was certainly an urgency about this, no question. Um, Why had the Democrats attuned it? Because they had very successfully exploited the issue right. in 82. Right. And tell me, had the commission been established before the election or after? I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay. Don't remember. Yeah. And what, I mean, what were the dynamics within it? Uh, because clearly you had some people who were, um, you know, fight to the last right. uh, redoubt right. defenders of the right. system of the status As it was. quo. Right, right. Um, you know, Carolyn Weaver's probably the best uh, since she was a participant in it to tell you what the dynamics internally were like. Um, but again, I think going to your original question, which is there was the commission, there was the report, but then there was the final action, um, and the resolution in the Senate. And, um, I think that is a, the dynamics of the personalities involved of Moynihan, of Dole, of others. Um, tell me about the relationship between, because on the surface, the, the two men who are about as different, different as, as could be, could be. Um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Dole commented on Moynihan in his farewell speech on the Senate floor about that unique relationship. Um, I think they were both, they came from such different places, but I think they were both people who were legislators. I think, um, in Moynihan, Dole saw an extraordinary intellect. I mean, just an extraordinary intellect. And uh, sort of an odd set of um, views. I mean, if you think of, you know, Moynihan in the Nixon days, I mean, sort of, uh, you know, his foreign policy issues, his social welfare and domestic issues, sort of welfare policy. Um, I think Dole saw somebody who had an extraordinary mind, who was open to a variety of points of view, who didn't take an, you know, sort of an, an ideological sort of this is it, you know, I'm only going to go this way. Unpredictable at times. Um, sense of humor. An extraordinary sense of humor, extraordinary warmth. Um, you know, had his personal challenges. Um, you know, there were things you didn't do after a certain point in the day. Um, but um, at the heart of it, somebody who was so direct uh, with whom you could have a conversation and know exactly where he was. There was no nothing duplicitous about Moynihan. Um, and so, you know, Dole could have a conversation with him. They could, you know, and um, you knew exactly where you were and what you were getting. You know, that was... That also illustrates, presumably any anyone in a position of leadership, particularly majority or minority leader, has to not only learn, but practice tolerance. Oh, well, and I think, um, you know, going back to a, the much earlier conversation, I think um, one of the things that people did not anticipate with Dole was that tolerance. And... Uh, people that don't know him well view him as an intolerant fellow. Uh, and I think, in fact, one of the hallmarks of Dole is his tolerance uh, and his willingness to accept 
people from such a wide array of views and positions and styles. Um, I've never seen anybody quite as tolerant. I mean, he's remarkable. And, um, you know, you'd see it in small things in the Senate. Um, we had a particular senator who had a tendency to break into tears when he felt strongly about something. And it was always a, a little over the edge, emotional, um, for kind of odd reasons. And there was nobody as controlled as Dole was in terms of his own sort of personality and emotions. Um, and he could deal with that person now. You know, when the guy left the room, you know, Dole would be shaking his head. But he could deal with him as well as he could with somebody who, you know, was um, could be mean and nasty. And there were plenty of those as well. Um, he was unbelievably tolerant of people's foibles and, you know, styles. It was remarkable. That calls for an extraordinary dexterity. Oh, and the, uh, no question. But again, I mean, I think if, you know, looking at Dole from 76 forward, I didn't know him in 76, but when I went to work for him in 77, I mean, if you look at the transition in um, uh, almost uh, gravitas, uh, as he acquired more and more responsibilities, as he became responsible for a greater array of issues and people in terms of um, constituencies, you s you saw him, you know, take on those responsibilities um, and treat them very seriously. Um, and I mean, I just, I think he had an extraordinary array of skills that no one could have anticipated. You know, whether it's negotiating over the smallest detail, whether it's building relationships with a Danny Rostenkowski or a, a Charlie Rangel or, you know, any number of characters on the House side or in the Senate. Um, you know, with Bob Byrd, with George Mitchell. I mean, you can't think of three people who are diff more different than the three of them. But I bet both Mitchell and Byrd would say that their relationship with Dole were extraordinary. Uh, and I don't think they could have expected it, nor would many others, had, had they not gotten to know Dole. Uh, I'm sure that would be true of George McGovern. I'm sure that would be true of Tom Harkin. Uh, people who, with whom you can't imagine Dole having a great deal in common, but who found common purpose and were able to work with him. You mentioned Rangel's name. That intrigues me. What was the... You know, Rangel was a very active, very outspoken member of the House Ways and Means Committee, an urban, you know, uh, Democrat um, uh, dealing with a farm state senator. And, um, you know, Dole could deal with Rangel when he needed to. Rangel also issues. strikes me as a bit of a throwback, too, to an era yeah, when yes. I mean, a, deal, a deal maker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no question. And no someone question. who can think big. No question. No question. No question. Um, um, but again, I mean, I think the other side of Dole is the side that had every policeman and every cleaning lady in the Capitol want to see him before he left. Um, you know, he was so uniquely aware of the people around him, uniquely aware of people's contributions in whatever form. Um, never sort of lost track of who he was or what he was um, or, you know, take on the airs of, you know, sort of an aristocracy. It just didn't happen Well, that gets him. back to what we talked about before a little bit. I mean, I think there's a real 
populist oh, streak. Oh, no question. Indulged. No question. And correspondingly, uh, not only an appreciation for the cleaning woman, right, but uh, a positive delight in poking fun at the stuffed shirt. No question. No question. Well, and that's, I mean, it, that's why it's interesting. I mean, that Dole could get along with the, the differences between uh, Jack Danforth um, and, uh, you know, Chuck Grassley. Um, you know, enormous differences in wealth and, you know, we used to call them the Millionaire Caucus, you know, Jay Rockefeller and Danforth and Hines and, you know, uh, Lloyd Benson and others, um, but Dole somehow found a way to do that, you know, to deal with these, per, or, you know, to, to Pete Domenici, you know, anybody more, you know, simple than, than Pete in terms of backgrounds. But Dole um, never took on the airs of someone who had arisen to an extraordinary position. You know, he remained at the heart of it a kid from Kansas. Let me ask you a couple of things. The whole notion of the senator's family, and I know it's frayed in some ways, but I wonder to what degree it still exists. And for example, when you lose a, you know, I remember when John Chafee died. Yes. For example. Yes. Yes. Uh, or in a different context, when Tower, uh, when his nomination yes. was shot down. Yes. How does that? Yes. How does that affect Dole? Well. Um, you know, there is a family, uh, at least there was at that point in time, and I think they are sensitive to the unique situation they all face in terms of the time they spend doing what they're doing as compared to spending time with their families, um, that they see the strengths and weaknesses of the, of each other in, you know, very difficult circumstances, um, and I do think they tend to gather around, you know, when when they uh, go through transitions and they feel the loss when they lose one of their colleagues. Um, you know, some of them have been there longer than others. They, they have, you know, closer relationships. Um, but I'm sure there are those who view the loss of Pete Domenici in terms of his transition and his illness um, as, um, you know, a great tragedy. Um, certainly the loss of Pat Moynihan, the loss of John Chafee. Um, you know, I think they felt very personally. You know, these are people who they had known for years and had relationships with. Did he think Tower got a raw deal? Or how did he, how did he deal with, uh, um, with that? That's an interesting question. Um, because it's also tied up inevitably with, you know, in some ways it's his first test as, Bush's, yeah, as Bush's guy yeah, after yeah. the... You know. you know, I think he he did in some respects. I mean, I think each of these end up being a unique set of circumstances, and the dynamics around these confirmations it become very strange. Uh, I mean, Tower was a challenging character and, and a tough person to like, um, and so perhaps a little less sympathy on the part of many. Um, Bitsy was viewed, as I understand it, by many as being arrogant and autocratic. And um, so, you know, was that viewed as, you know, as difficult a loss as perhaps someone else? I think he was also viewed as having cared deeply about and knowledgeable about, um, uh, you know, sort of defense policy issues and, and the armed services. 
Um, you know, and so, you know, I think they approach each of these differently. You know, they're also very practical. I mean, you know, they're also, in each case, um, it's, you know, they all sense their own weaknesses and challenges and, uh, you know, you think they're for the grace of God. Well, I was going to say, I mean, there were, you know? there were those who said, well, whatever the thought about power, that there was more than a little yeah. scent of hypocrisy yeah, exactly. about that process. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, I'm sure Dole would say that there were others perhaps who also had personal lives and foibles that were never held accountable. Uh, and so there is a certain amount of that, you know, why him as compared to somebody else. Um, but they face each of these things. I mean, you know, the decision, uh, one of the most difficult times, and I remember it vividly because I went over to his office to, to get his letter of resignation, was Bob Packwood's departure. And, you know, you feel the personal tragedy of that. I mean, you don't you don't explain away or defend the behavior, but just the personal tragedy of somebody who is so extraordinarily bright, so gifted in so many ways, but in this case, um, clearly um, uh, challenged, uh, and how difficult that was. Was there a sense that the rules were changing, even as yes, you were? Yes, no question, no yeah, question. But... I mean, there are people in the Senate yet today whose personal lives have been um, at issue at times. Yeah who've not been held fully accountable. Um, and I think times have changed. Circumstances have changed. Tolerance levels have changed. Um, you know, no question. We haven't talked about health issues. And in particular, I mean, I'd be, there's a sense that at the outset of the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. that whatever you thought of her proposal. Yes. Obviously, there was a lot of criticism. Mm-hmm. That there was a substantive alternative that yes. was put on the table. Yes. And I don't know how much of a Republican consensus there was behind it, but that it it, it represented a significant advance over what existed. We had at the time. And, and there's a sense that, you know, Dole was willing to push mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. once her plan crashed, mm-hmm. then it... It sort of went away. You know, the dynamics at that uh, throughout that entire period are uh, the stuff of stories. Um, I think there were a number of things that occurred. One, I think the administration made just a huge tactical error in having waited so long to get the damn thing on the table. I mean, basically blew, you know, the first year. You know, doing gays in the military and, you know, a host of other things. And not welfare reform. And not welfare reform. Supposedly, Clinton himself said later on, he should have done welfare reform, as he was advised. Yeah, exactly, and not taken on some of these other issues. And so, first, you had the time that went by in a new administration where he might have made some progress. Two, you had the complexity of the bill and the process they went through, and the alienation of the Republicans as a general matter. And was Ira Magazine a part of that? Oh, yeah, huge part of it. Um, You know, and I'm sure there are people who will, you know, find things about him to praise, but I think a complete lack of understanding of the process, a complete lack of understanding of the relations with the Hill, an arrogance about... um, 
uh, a process that where you could isolate people and then just hand them a product and say, you know, here it is. Uh, the clear decision not to include the Republicans in the discussions early on to isolate them completely. But there was an alternative. It it had moved along, but I think as that year progressed and as we went into that following summer of that second year, um, it was quite clear that uh, the forces that had risen up, you know, Harry and Louise and everybody else, had clearly gotten a foothold. And um, as we went through that summer when the sort of... Um, uh, the chafee um, sort of middle grounders uh, believed they then could put something on the table that was pieced up from the sort of conversations that, that Dole had had. I mean, I'd had backdoor conversations with the Moynihan's people to see if we couldn't find some middle ground because the Finance Committee was no fan of the, of the Clinton bill. I mean, the Kennedy folks were really the only ones they could look to for help, and they weren't getting much help out of the House side either. Um, but um, at that point, I, the folks that wanted nothing, I mean, that really wanted status quo, clearly saw the ability to just stop it. I mean, they were going into the elections. It was viewed as essentially a real weak point on the part for the administration, uh, and that any outcome that was anything other than complete defeat at that point would, would have given the administration a win going into those elections. So, uh, you know, again, as we played through that summer, where Dole's instincts the prior year might have been, here's the, here's the provisions. We went down to the White House. Dole had dinner down there, Dole and Mitchell. Um, we went down a couple of times, and then there were, you know, constant conversations. Um, it was quite clear at that point that uh, the decision had been made uh, by some quarters that no bill was the right solution. It has been argued that there was, at least at that point, a distinction between what the president's natural instincts might have been mm -hmm. and and Mrs. Clinton's instincts. That, you know, it's hard to know. It's hard to know unless yeah. you're inside the White House. I mean, we certainly saw her. We certainly saw her people. Um, you know, hard to know what where he would have been. I mean, clearly they wanted to get something done. Whether you know there were internal White House machinations between her and him. I don't know. I have no way of knowing that. But, um, you know, Clinton clearly, at least now looking back, was a guy who wants to, you know, take what you can get and move on. Um, but in this case, wasn't going to happen. You know, one of the great what-ifs, uh, apparently in 98, he told people, credibly, people around him mm -hmm. in the White House, that that year he wanted to tackle entitlements. In, you know, I think in, in no small measure because he's thinking about his place in history and right. you know what do you do right. as a peacetime right. president? Right, and right. That would have been right. a huge. That would have been a huge thing. And huge. Of course, the whole and year they could have made they could have made great progress. Not what they wanted, the the big thing, but they could have made great progress towards um, incremental solutions. I mean, I'll tell you, the master of that is Henry Waxman. Um, Henry Waxman, through the 80s, in terms of all the Medicaid provisions, Henry essentially built a constituency and built inch by inch a massive increase in, um, in coverage for kids, and it was incremental. It was no huge chunk. It was little pieces at a time. 
and you see the result today of what that initiative did and what that patience did. And in this case, the White House, you know, was sort of an all or nothing um, and, you know, resulted in nothing. Philosophically, is Dole comfortable with that kind of... I mean, what does he think government's role ought to be? Safety net. I mean, I really do think he thinks that government's role ought to be helping those who cannot help themselves in a broad array, whether it's in food or whether it's in health, uh, whether it's in education, um, that people ought to have access to care, people ought not... Um, be wanting for drugs or for the services that they need, that there ought to be personal responsibility involved in that, and that it's government's role to sort of fill in that safety net. Now, he would debate how one does that, whether it's tax credits or something else. But at the end of the day, I think Dole is somebody who fundamentally believes people ought to have access to care and ought to have uh, the peace of mind that that access and support provides and that the government ought to provide some kind of a safety net to allow that to exist. Were you surprised at all, given the fact the 88 race was pretty bitter mm-hmm. uh, and very personal? Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, were you around the day that he confronted the vice president of the floor of the Senate? Remember about Elizabeth's uh, yes. blind trust or whatever? Do yes. Do you remember that day? Uh, vaguely. Vaguely, it was not pretty. Was he just frustrated or um, angry? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I almost wondered how much because I, because there's a sequel that I get to mm-hmm. that is a very different relationship. But you 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 have to wonder if I mean, notwithstanding the Saturday Night Live skits, right? Which I don't know if he saw it, if he enjoyed or. Yeah, or laughed yeah, about, but, yeah, don't but, know. But, but there has to be a kind of class awareness. Mm-hmm. The Dole never got anything handed right. to him. Right. And, and that right. included in his political career. He, no question. He, he took he had to fight all the for bullets. everything. No question. And, and the vice president, because he's vice president, right. you know, was in a very different role. Right. Right. Um, and going back to the RNC days. Right. I mean, right. so th- there has to be this long... History. Yeah. Of a certain, yeah. And you wonder whether it all sort of came to a boil I'm sure that's that. part of it. And, and, you know, and he's also, I, I mean, I think that's true. And I think Dolo's always been uncomfortable with that sort of me- mega wealth and sort of entitlement that comes with uh, great wealth and, and background and... I think always a little uncomfortable around it, um, but he's also remarkably protective of Elizabeth. I mean, really remarkably protective of Elizabeth. Um, you know, very patient, very go along, get along. But you know, there's a point at which he snaps. Yeah. And then the sequel, however, I mean, which I don't know whether anyone could have predicted. Although I think knowing him, they probably would have. Is that he was able to put that behind him mm-hmm. once Bush was in the White House and right. to the point where right. there's an extraordinary scene at the Absolutely. end of the Bush presidency Absolutely. where the two of them are up yes. with tears in their eyes yes. talking about loyalty. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, quintessentially dull. I mean, you know, he moves on. 
you know, he, he deals with, uh, you know, whatever issue has to be dealt with, whatever the relationship happens to be. Um, and then he moves on. Now, not to suggest he doesn't have a memory, but, um, you know, he lost, they won. He had a responsibility. His responsibility was leader on the floor and to get things done. He didn't want anyone to suggest that anything that didn't happen in the Bush administration was because Bob Dole failed in his responsibilities. He wasn't going to be tagged with that. Um, and I think, you know, in part it's his own sense of himself, but in part it's, you know, he just that's my job, those are my responsibilities, and you move on. Do you think Bush deserves any credit for that? I mean, that, I mean, that it was a two-way evolution? Well, I mean, I, I'm sure he does, but I think the, the effort was much more on Dole's side. I mean, Bush was in the White House in charge of, you know, everything, and um, he, you know, he certainly was pleasant and I'm sure was helpful in that respect but it was Dole's that was the more challenging which is to go back and you know make things happen uh, among you know kind of a restive crowd um, and um, you know I think it was the bigger challenge for Dole. Doesn't he also though he's part of his generation but Dole have a reverence for the office. Oh, no question. Presidency. No question. And, um, you know, I, I'll never forget, we, we saw this. Um, we were sitting in the uh, cabinet room, and um, it was during the never-ending discussions around budget stuff, and um, w the leadership had all been invited down. It was one of the rare times that, that, that the staff were included, and I was there and actually presenting. Um, and they were all sitting around the cabinet table. We were all sitting back, and the Clinton staff had a tendency, A, to come in with no ties or anything, sort of, and rumbling, you know, wander around, and they would wander in and out of the Oval Office. You know, the door was open to the Oval. We were in the cabinet room, and, you know, they'd kind of walk into the Oval Office and have a conversation and walk back out and say something to Clinton. And Dole was outraged, uh, it, not because it was Clinton, but outraged at what he viewed as a, a lack of respect for the office by how people appeared, how people behaved, how they would interrupt each other, how they would wander into what he viewed as sort of sacred space that, you know, was sort of sacrosanct. Um, and it was about, not the person, but about the office. And I think irrespective of who was, whether it was Clinton in the office or Bush or Reagan or, you know, anybody, um, it is about the office. Um, I also think um, in his dealings with Clinton and, and, and everyone else in the Oval Office, um, he never lost sight of that. I mean, you know, whomever they were, they were the commander-in-chief. And uh, I think it's an enormous respect for the office. No question. Do you think his, his relationship with Clinton involved? Uh, it certainly has. I mean, they've done things together since Clinton left the White House. Uh, they seem to have a perfectly pleasant relationship. I think Clinton, to his credit, I mean, I think having given Dole the Presidential Medal of Freedom, I think was an enormously kind 
uh, and generous gesture that meant a great deal to Dole. Um, also smart politics. Oh, no. They're nothing if not smart politicians. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think uh, efforts on both of their parts, um, it has evolved. Now, are they friends? You know, I wouldn't describe them as close buddies, but um, a very healthy respect for one another, no question. And, of course, so that was an occasion, wasn't it, where, where Clinton asked Dole about raising money for the World War II yes. Memorial? Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. Um, and so I think Clinton, I don't know, I don't know Clinton, so I can't guess. My guess is he has a respect for Dole as a gifted uh, politician, but also as an extraordinary American in having contributed greatly. And I think Dole has respect for many of Clinton's gifts. I mean, he is a remarkable orator. He is, um, you know, a skilled politician. Uh, and he has given back. I mean, he's gotten involved in a great many issues. And so I think that the relationship has evolved, no question. I don't know if we talked about it before, just a couple of things. Um, what yeah, that, that unfortunately that, I have to head to the airport. Okay, that um, State of the Union response. Oh. Was it ninety six? Yes, I think so. Uh, uh, yeah, because it was at the beginning of the campaign. Yes. Yeah. Do, what do you remember about that? Oh, I remember the the office feeling like the black hole of Calcutta. Um, I remember how and the background was. He had he he had a very shall we call hard line. Yes. Uh, yes. Particular cultural issues. Yes. And, and, yes. And there were some of us who thought it it harkened back. It, to, yeah, to the Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah. the worst of uh, yes. the, the cliche. And he looked like Darth Vader. Um, it, it was uh, he was nervous. I think there were... Because of what he was saying? I think because of what he was saying, because of the stakes, because of, you know, the timing, you know, going into the campaign. I think uh, there were real differences of opinion over the tone that was to be taken, you know, that healthcare wasn't a crisis. I mean, all this kind of stuff. Um, the... Um, uh, you know, whether or not he should do it, you know, whether he was the right person to do it. Um, you know, some tensions, I suspect, in the party, you know, whether this was, you know, Dole taking advantage of, uh, of the position, given the campaign, uh, but real mixed views as to whether he ought to take a hard line. Uh, and I just remember everyone feeling very anxious about it and feeling not very good about it after the fact. And presumably there were these tensions, predictable, in yes. many ways, between yes. the campaign, no question, and the office, and the office. Yeah. N never ending. You know, the campaign was of the view at the end of the day that he couldn't stay in the Senate and legislate and run for president. You, you know, you couldn't keep getting boxed, and you couldn't keep being distracted, and that we were a distraction. You know, that Dole's instinct was to legislate and to go back and fix things, or to be out on the road talking about stuff, um, when what he really needed to do was just run. And so there was no question there was tension. Did, did you ever want to quit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, on more than one occasion. Um, you know, certainly during the period of time when the conservatives were so uh, agitated and I was in the paper every day, I offered to quit. I went to Dole and said, you know, this is not clear to me, it's in your interest or mine. 
Uh, you know, it was every day in the Times, every day in the Wall Street Journal, every day in the Post. Can you trace the genesis of that? Why all of a sudden um, you? I think part of it was around the welfare bill and the sort of family forum. Phyllis Shafley, you know, she's a Hillary Clinton. Uh, the uh, I was intemperate in a meeting with the sort of Christian right and uh, around welfare, uh, you know, that marriage was the foundation of society. And I said, you know, what about people that are, you know, scholastics or whatever, not scholastics, um, uh, nuns and priests and... Aesthetics. Aesthetics, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are a whole lot of people that are, you know, single, childless couples, I mean, you know. Um, But I was intolerant and I uh, I was perhaps intemperate in the meeting. That got translated. They never trusted me anyway. And so I think that kind of spun out of control. Um, They were looking for an excuse. They'd never trusted me on any of these social welfare issues. And I I think they saw it as a way to get at Dole uh, and to push him to the right. But isn't that implicit, or doesn't suggest that they they didn't trust him? I mean, yeah, you, you yeah. were no question. You, you no were question. I was the vehicle. Of, I was the yeah, vehicle, yeah. Um, and so I went to him and I said, you know, it's this may be the right time for me to go because you don't need this. Um, and he said, no, you know, I'm perfectly happy with you. I I know where you are and I know who I am and. I'm not worried about it. The campaign wanted me gone. No question. I'm sure they wanted me out of there. Um, and there were earlier times that, you know, there was a time when Dole, when uh, uh, we'd gone over to the leader's office in that first year and, and Rod was leaving um, after nine or ten months, um, was going back to the private sector and the question was who was going to be chief of staff. And Dole was not clear that I was strong enough and uh, I think was really... Um, was sort of a little bit of the old old, um, where, you know, didn't really want to deal with it and didn't want to talk to me, mm. um, where I thought, you know, I've given the guy a fair number of years, uh, and he wasn't sure that I could really handle it. Um, and so I thought about leaving then. And, you know, there in any job, I was there 19 years, 19 and a half years. And... Um, uh, you know, you can't be with somebody that long and in those many positions and not at times feel like, yeah. you know. Last day. Take us through the last day. I mean, the, the uh, you know. That, uh, very sad. Very, uh, very bittersweet. Um, obviously, Elizabeth and uh, Robin were there. Um, and it, it, Dole was very emotional. Uh, I mean, he, you know, alternately was in tears and not in tears. And I think he realized the full impact of the transition and the departure. And, um, you know, going to the Senate floor for the last time. And I think he knew that was, you know, the last time for a very long time. Uh, In fact, I don't know that he's been up there very much at all, even since then. Um, uh, You know, and his colleagues... Uh, both sides of the aisle, I think also saw a generational shift. I mean, a move away from somebody who they'd known, who, you know, they'd fought with, but um, uh, who they trusted. And, uh, uh, you know, so many of them came up to him in the well and came up to him at his desk. 
um, you know, I was seated next to him, and, um, uh, you know, the galleries were packed, uh, and we'd spent weeks with people lining up to take photographs with him and shake hands with him. I mean, lines and lines and lines of people. You know, so the security guards were in tears, and the cleaning ladies were in tears, and um, you know, I think uh, it was an enormously difficult time for him, but I think he felt, and has to have felt, uh, how much people appreciated him and how much they cared for him. Um, but it was a tough day. And then he was gone, and then we just cleaned up the office. And we were out of there that day, and Lot was in. I mean, Lot was, you know, at the door as we were headed out the door. The king is dead. Lot lived the king. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no question. He was uh, he was moving in. Furniture was moving in. So, uh, you know, it was pretty quick, as these things are. You just moved on. It, it is interesting that the, 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 there can be such sentiment. Yes. And then, and then almost. The light goes out. Yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly how it was. 